The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Good morning. Okay, well, let's get started, y'all. Let me, let me say a prayer for us. Pray with me, please. Yeah, Lord. We are very thankful for your gracious, loving kindness in Christ Jesus for having all these years, Lord, promised your your word according to your word that you would fix the problem in our lives, fix the the sin that so easily besets us, Lord. And we're going to look at that today. Um, Father, help us to lay hold of these things and take it. Take these things, take your word into our lives, Father, that it be changed and, and that we can bring it out to the world, be salt and light to the world, Father, and, and uh, help us to see your heart in these things. That's our motivation, Lord. That's what we feed on. We feed on Christ. You're our source. You never run dry, Lord. We come to you. And so just bless the hearing of your word and, and the, the, the uh, speaking of it, Lord that uh, your will would be accomplished. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So, we're going to be looking at at, uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. The title of the lesson today is Descending into Greatness, or the Greatness of Being a Slave. Um, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and they're, they're uh, talking about things. And, and this, this might sound like an echo today, because the Lord is working on communicating a very important spiritual truth to his disciples, and they're fighting against it, resisting what he is endeavoring to teach them. So if we're going to look back here at chapter 9, verse 33, um, and graciously, Tina has brought that up on the board. Thank you. <laughs> they came to Capernaum. This is this is back a couple of lessons ago. And when he was in the house, he asked them, "What were you discussing on the way?" But they kept silent. For one, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Who is the greatest? And he sat down and he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. Okay? So, he's ended his public ministry in Galilee. They're in Capernaum. And he's in the house and he questions them. Okay? Um, so, we're just a few, a few uh, weeks removed from this, this teaching, this lesson. And they're soon going to be entering Jerusalem. And the subject of humility is being addressed again in today's lesson. It keeps coming up, the subject of humility. And this won't be the last time, sad to say. The subject comes up again during Passion Week. Um, at the Last Supper. It comes up. They bring this up again at the Last Supper. Um, 
So in Luke 22, verse 24, is a parallel passage, passage. So let's look at that real quick. That'll help us to kick this off. There arose a dispute among them as to which of them was regarded to be the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. The leader is one who serves. Um, for who is greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Okay? I'm among you as one who serves. So Jesus revisits this lesson again and again for these hard-hearted, obstinate men. And as they are coming nigh to Jerusalem, it's taught again. Only this time in today's lesson, they're the ones that bring it up. They're getting bolder in, 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 their, uh, in their request here. So let's look at, at verse 35 through 45 of, of chapter 10 of Mark. Okay? And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one on, at your right hand and one at your left hand, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is about greatness. This, this uh, lesson today is about greatness, and in particularly, the greatness of humility. What, what humility will produce in your life. It's the greatness of service, the greatness of slavery. And the lesson here positions two things that are well known to all of us, and one more regularly experienced than the other, okay? Pride and humility. Pride and humility. The bottom line in scripture is that God hates pride and honors humility. God hates pride and honors humility. It is literally everywhere in the scriptures. Speaking of pride, we, can, we read in uh, Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil, and perverted speech I hate. It's the Lord speaking. Okay. 
true adoration of God is to hate pride. Proverbs 21.4 says, A proud heart is sin. It is sin. Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked, are sin. And there's much more about pride in the Old Testament, and particularly the book of Proverbs. And in the New Testament, Romans 1.30 says, Pride is an element of the reprobate mind. And we don't have those on the scripture, but I'm going to read through them here. 1 Timothy 3.6 says, Pride comes from the devil. In 1 John 2.16, Pride is characteristic of the world. 1 Timothy 6.3 says, Pride is a mark of false teachers. James 4.6 says, Pride alienates one from God because God resists the proud. And on the other hand, James 4.6 says, He gives grace to the humble. Humility is a virtue that, that God honors. In Micah 6.8 it says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God? Psalm 138.6 says, Though the Lord is high, yet he has respect to the humble. Isaiah 66, verse 2, and we've looked at this one in previous lessons. To this man will I look, even to him who is poor, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. All evidences of humility. In Psalm 10.17, the Lord says, The Lord hears the desire of the humble. And Proverbs 15.33 says, Before honor is humility. So this is all over the scripture, y'all. It's all over the scripture. It's said over and over again. We need to hear it over and over again. That's why we're revisiting the lesson today. Jesus is revisiting this lesson with his disciples. Okay. So in the New Testament, we're told to put on humility, to be clothed with humility, and to walk in humility. But this is very tough. This is tough for us. Pride is the defining sin of humanity. All other sins feed pride. All other sins feed pride. All temptations, all solicitations to do evil of any kind, and every kind are based upon self-gratification. The reason a temptation is a temptation is because we want to do it. We want to do it. It appeals then to our personal fulfillment. It's appealing to our personal fulfillment and our personal satisfaction, our personal desire, and therefore the right to do what you want to do. We do what we want to do. That's what pride does. We do what we want to do. And, and this idea of doing what you want to do is just an expression of our own pride and self-love. This is why in the list of sins mentioned in the Old Testament, there are six things, yea, seven, that God hates. The first one is a proud heart because pride is the underlying sin that leads to all other sins. And yet, in the world of humanity, pride is exalted because man exalts himself. Man seeks his own satisfaction, his own fulfillment. That's what it means to be fallen, corrupt, unregenerate. We are not surprised that pride dominates the culture the way it does, are we? I mean, we can see it pretty, pretty clearly, right? 
It certainly dominates our culture. We haven't learned anything in the history of the world about the virtues of humility and the sins of pride. It seems like people have learned nothing. Every generation of man has been proud, egotistical, self-centered, self-promoting, self-exalting. And in our generation, we have found Bible verses to support our self-esteem. This is a very, very deep-seated reality in human beings, in all of us, all of us. That is why our Lord is having a difficult time getting the lesson across, even to his apostles, okay, his intimate disciples. They love Jesus. They love the truth. They believe in him. They believe in his kingdom. They're saved. They've been regenerated. The Holy Spirit is with them. And they still struggle with pride. And they struggle greatly in a losing fashion. They have a materialistic view of the kingdom, not because of some esoteric distant reality, but because of their own personal desires for exaltation. So these, these men are the commonest of men. These apostles and those who are following Jesus, they're just the commonest of men. They're not many mighty or noble. And the notion that they could be elevated for the first time in their lives or anyone in their family could be exalted at this time in their lives is a very appealing thing. They've worked all their lives They've served others all their lives. They have been at the low end of society. This is all heady stuff for them. Okay? And now they have been drawn into this intimacy with Christ, the Messiah, his kingdom. Okay? They get it. They know who he is. They understand the kingdom. James and John were at the transfiguration. They, they have an exalted understanding of spiritual reality as it regards Christ and his coming kingdom. And instead of this developing humility in them, it has fed their inordinate remaining pride. Even though the Lord has said to them a principle that they should have well understood in verse 31, many who are first will be last and the last first. <laughs> wake up call <laughs> that's our entomologist over here with the, the cricket for the phone <laughs> that's okay it's okay so the, the first will be last and the last first which means everybody ends up equal in the kingdom of God everyone is equal we all come to Christ the same way. Now, the lesson today is going to look at rewards. There, there, there's going to be honors given and rewards given. And we're going to look at that. But we're all equal in God's eyes in Christ. He loves each one of us. He's redeemed each one of us, given his life for us. We believed him, and he has, he has taken care of this, this issue of sin. But we have to kick in on this. We have to kick in, okay? These disciples still perceive themselves as superior, superior to each other, okay? 
Peter even expressed that earlier, remember? And he said, Lord, this is not going to happen. Stop talking about dying, going to the cross. That'll never happen. Okay. He expressed that for all the disciples. They were all in that place. Okay. Um, he also, in, in, uh, in chapter 10, verse 28, he says, we've left everything. We went over this a couple of weeks ago. We've left everything and followed you. And in, in uh, I think it was Matthew, he adds, what's in it for us? We've done this. What's in it for us? We've done the self-denial. We've taken up the cross and followed you. Lose your life. We've done it. What's in it for us? The pride is, is just deep-seated. They want glory. They want elevation, fulfillment, and satisfaction. And consequently, when Jesus talks about his own suffering, they push it away. They don't, they don't want to have anything to do with it. In chapter 8, 31, he tells him he's going to die and rise. 9, 31, he tells him he's going to die and rise again. Chapter 10, 32, we looked at it last week. The same thing, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered, condemned to death, handed over to the Gentiles, and also rise from the dead. Now, this was bothersome. It was so bothersome to, to the disciples to hear this. They didn't want to discuss, discuss the details of this at all. Okay? They just wanted the issue to go away. They want glory, they want king, the kingdom, exaltation, because that's natural to human pride. No matter what our Lord had said up to this point, it doesn't seem to have penetrated even the three who saw his glory. They're the, James and John are the ones that come to him and ask this question. So, so Peter asks, you know, what's in it for us? And here we see James and John who show up with this bizarre request. Okay. Pride dies very hard in the heart. Very hard in the heart. Okay, we're going to see that here. They should have known again from the Old Testament that uh, God exalts humility. Abraham in Genesis 18 says, Who am I? I'm, I'm the least. Isaac was willing to give his life even as a 14-year-old boy. As an offering to God. That's as humbling as you can possibly get. Jacob says, I'm not worthy of the least of your mercies. Joseph weeps without bitterness over the betrayal that has come from his own brothers. A humble posture. Moses says, who am I that I should go and lead these people? Joshua took his clothes, tore his clothes, fell on his face, and then threw dust on his head as he stood before God. All acts of humility. Gideon says, who am I? I'm the least. But the sweetest testimony, possibly to, the, to an attitude of humility, came from one of the great heroes of Judaism. That these, man should, these men should have well known about. Okay, it was David. In First Chronicles 29, David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly saying, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord. You exalt yourself as head over all. 
both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hands is power and might. And therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Wow. That's what should have come out of the mouth of, the, of his 12 disciples. They should have said, all glory to you, all honor, all majesty to you, Lord. It's yours forever and ever. Then they should have said what David said, but who am I? Who am I, O oh Lord? And who are my people that we are able to offer generously as this? For all things come from you, from your hand. We ha have been given all things. O oh Lord our God, all this abundance is from your hand and all is yours. That's the attitude these men should have had. That's the kind of humility that uh, becomes heroic. Heroic. And every one of those names just mentioned are in the 11th chapters of Hebrews, the Hall of Faith. Now other men of humility could be added from the Old Testament. Josiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, many more. They're, they're all through the Old Testament. And here comes, then comes John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, who is not worthy to baptize Jesus and says, I am not worthy to even untie your sandals. And he must increase and I must decrease. Paul is a model of humility, as seen in Acts 20, serving the Lord with all humility of mind. This is a lesson they should have known and one that they eventually did learn. But it's not easy. It's not easy for us either to learn humility. It's just not easy. So as we look at our text, there are two possible paths to greatness that are addressed. The first is the path of self-promotion. The path of self-promotion. And the second is the path of self-denial. They're laid out for us today in this, in this text. Now the first is carnal and worldly. It is modeled by worldly leaders, both men and women. The second is spiritual, heavenly. It's a path that's modeled by Jesus Christ himself. Self-promotion works in the kingdom of men. It works all the time. But it doesn't work in the kingdom of, of God. Self-denial works in the kingdom of God, but it doesn't work in the kingdom of men. Self-promotion is the world's way. Self-denial is God's way. So let's look at first at the picture of self-promotion. So we see James and John coming to Jesus and making their request. And please observe how this breaks out into three characteristics of self-promotion. We're gonna look at three characteristics of self-promotion on this path to greatness through self-promotion. First of all, it is motivated by self-ambition, selfish ambition. Verse 35 of Mark chapter 10, 
When James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us what we, ever, we ask for you. So James and John, are, they're the ones called the sons of thunder, and they make this request. And how brash is this? How brash is this? Give us whatever we ask of you. Okay. These guys are part of the inner, inner circle, the most intimate of Jesus' disciples. They're daily with him. And they think they have gained enough ground because of this intimacy and during their private conversations with, with Jesus. And they're at the transfiguration. So it's, it has come to a place in their minds where they're bold enough, enough to ask for this privilege. But it's not just them. Matthew tells us their mother came with them. In Matthew 20, verse 20. And this is important. Why would, you, why would you bring your mother? Okay? Come on. Be a man. You bring your mother? Well, it's not just that they, they, they brought their mother. It's, it's who their mother was. So when you study the uh, crucifixion of Christ in the account of Matthew, Mark, and John. We see there's three women at the cross, right? Mary, the mother of our Lord, Mary Magdalene, and then a third woman. The third woman who's at the cross is identified in three different ways. Matthew calls her the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Okay? Now, if there's nothing else that's shown here that, that, that she's at the cross, she hangs in there. She's got, she's got some faith. She hangs in there. Mark calls her Salome. So that was her name. And then in John, she's called the sister of Jesus' mother. So their mother is Jesus' aunt. James and John are Jesus' cousins. So now we've got a family deal going on here. We've got a family deal going on. That's got to be good for something, right? That's got to be good for something. Um, something big, really big. And she bought into it. She didn't ask for herself. She comes to Jesus bowing low, prosecuneo. You guys like those Greek? I like just trying to say it. Prosecuneo prostrating herself, desiring exactly what they asked for. Okay, It's a family ambition. Everybody's in on the deal, and they show up in numbers. And then they do something that is typical of a small child. Okay? We want you to do whatever we ask you. Do, do for us uh, whatever we want, we ask you. Just do it. We want you to do it. Okay, that's what, that's what a small child does, right? Okay? You, you folks with children, if, you, if your children ever come to you and, and uh, wanted you to say yes before they ever told you what they wanted, who said that? <laughs> Somebody said that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, okay. Please say yes, Daddy. Please say yes. Please say yes, okay? About what? Well, I'm not going to tell you. Just say yes. Just say yes, okay? It's, it's really kind of immature. It's very immature, actually. Okay, what they're doing here, 
They're asking for carte blanche. They're asking for a, a, a blanket approval. And then we'll tell you what, what we're going to do. And of course, the fear is that if they tell him what they want, there's not a chance he's going to give it to them. So they're just bypassing that fear. Go right to the question. Okay? So if they can pile up and play all these cards, the aunt, the cousin, just give us what we want, okay? Maybe you'll get emotional and you'll say, sure, do whatever you want. It's very presumptive, very presumptive. So Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? He, he, he wouldn't give them blanket approval, okay? The Lord's not going to give them blanket approval. They've got to explain themselves, okay? And collectively, they said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. Wow, this is just so brash, really brash. Humility is, is not, not found in this passage. It's not found. They had seen the Lord demonstrate humility after being with him for three years, 24-7. And they hadn't learned anything from watching the humbling of Christ. They learned nothing. And here they are, this sinfully bold, brash, and ambitious little group, it's ugly and it's unloving. Why is it unloving? Because they never think of the fact that they could that they are deliberately and purposefully excluding all the other disciples. They want to be first. They want to be right up there with them. Everybody else can sit behind them. I don't even think they're thinking about that. Just give us the seats. They're excluding all the other disciples. We're supposed to live with those we love and those we work with and those we encounter. It's this kind of thing that the Lord addressed the next week in the upper room when he says, the world will know that you are my disciples when you have what? Love for one another. This is, this is just ugly pride. And it's characterized by this kind of strong ambition this driving ambition that is manipulative, self-promoting. And that's the way it is in the world. That's just the way it is in the world. So the second thing we want to look at is that it's another feature of pride that rears its ugly head as well. We could call it arrogant overconfidence. Arrogant overconfidence. This is where, this is everywhere in people's today in people's lives today. Now, we should at least compliment these men on, on their theology. They need to be complimented. They believed in Jesus as Savior and Messiah and his kingdom is coming and he's going to reign in glory. That's some good theology, okay? But the fact that they thought they were worthy by demonstration of their ambition to be on the left and the right in glory shows they believed they were entitled to it. They were entitled to it. They're worthy of it. They're worthy. So in verse uh, 38, Jesus says, you do not know what you ask. Are you able? 
Are you able? Drinking the cup and being baptized are references to suffering here. Okay? Jesus is saying, you want elevation in the kingdom? Don't you understand that reward is relative to the degree of suffering that you endure? That's the principle here. You want glory? You you don't want suffering. Peter had articulated this view that they all held. We talked about that, right? He said, this this is not going to happen. They were not about the cross. They should have known uh, what, the te- what the scriptures have said, but they didn't want any suffering for him, and they didn't want any suffering for them. Didn't want it, okay? They're ignorant of this basic principle. Reward and honor corresponds directly to sacrificial suffering. Let me say that again. Reward and honor corresponds directly to sacrificial suffering. Rewards. Not salvation, Rewards. Okay. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, Jesus, Jesus says. That's an Old Testament idiom for draining a cup of its contents, for experiencing it fully. Whatever you're experiencing, you, you experience it fully. And in this case, it's suffering. Okay. Isaiah 31 says it's the cup of God's fury. Can you handle all that is to come. Jesus was going to drink the cup of God's fury. Remember it in the garden in Matthew 26. Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He would drink the cup of God's wrath to the bottom. Psalm 75 verse 8 talks about the ungodly drinking the cup of wrath. So that cup is very often associated with suffering. Are you able to do that? Are you able to be baptized? Not Christian baptism, but immersed, plunged all the way, all the way under to suffering. This is strong language, y'all. It's very strong language. And this is what they're asking. Because if you want the glory... The glory is the reward correspondent to the suffering. And they don't know that that's what they're asking for. Now their response to Jesus' question is ridiculously overconfident. Even arrogant. Again, with the, here's where they're a little arrogantly over, overconfident. Okay. In verse 39, they said to him, we are able. Whoa, whoa. It's like Peter in Luke 22. He says, Lord, I will never betray you. I'll never betray you. And then he goes and does it. But he just goes and does it. It's an overestimation based on pride. It's arrogant overconfidence. It's ugly. And of course, they couldn't handle it. Even if they, they, you know, they said they could, but they, they didn't. The scripture tells us they smote the shepherd and everyone fled. They ran for their lives. Okay, they ran for their lives. But our Lord's answer to them is gentle in verse verse 39. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. 
So with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. You will have it. You will have what you ask for. That's prophecy, y'all. He's prophesying there. For James, he's the first martyr. For John, he's the last martyr. In, J in John's case, he's rejected, exiled, an old man. He suffered a slow, agonizing death. James had his head cut off soon after the resurrection. Quick. It was over. Okay? Jesus said, you will. And they did because of the gospel. But even so, in verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And Matthew 20 adds, by my father, by my father. Jesus is indicating his condescension here by saying, it is not mine to give. This is for the father to give to those for whom it is pre prepared for by him. So who will sit at the right hand and left hand? No one knows. I don't know. No one knows. But it will be interesting to see when we get, we all, we all get back for the millennium. We're all going to come back for the millennium. It's going to be very interesting, won't it? Here our Lord embraces his submission to his Father in his incarnation. The glory seats are his Father's to give. Only God knows. Okay? But you don't get it by asking for it. We know that we can see that. Wow. These two, two seem maybe a little more carnal than the rest in doing this, don't they? Well, in verse 41... And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. They got, hey, they'd gotten preempted. Okay? They thought they were getting cut out of the deal. They got indignant. And this is the third, ap the third aspect of uh, looking at pride and its ugly competitiveness. Ugly competitiveness. In the world you have sinful, self-promoting, arrogant ambition... And then on top of all that, you have the spirit of competition. And that spirit wants to climb on everybody else's neck. They're having a hard time humbling themselves, these men. But our Lord is very kind to them. Okay. In verse 42, the lesson begins. It's a crucial lesson. It's a decisive lesson. He says, guys, let's start with something you know. Let's start with something you know. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Okay? He's saying, where did you learn this? You, you know this. Where did you learn it? Okay? Where did this come from? It's, it's from, from ancient times. Every ruler that's ever lived has lived like this. All practice katakurio, okay? Lording it over others. Lording it over others. Very strong word. It's to gain mastery, to subdue, to, to function as a despot, as an autocratic ruler. 
They want to climb on top of everybody else so that everyone serves them and honors them, respects them, and does what they want. The hoi megaloi, the big shots. They exercise authority and display their power. The world is filled with these types of, of people. These are just people. And the more corrupt they are, the more unscrupulous they are, the more likely they are to crawl, claw their way to the top. Listen to this, though. Here's their downfall. And we could talk about this all day long. I had to throw this in. I just, this, this is a real thought provoker here. A virtue can't sustain the fight. A virtue by itself cannot sustain the fight because they can't completely sell their souls. They won't do it. None of us will do it. We can't do it. Christ did it. We can't do it. A virtue can't sustain the fight because they can't completely sell their souls. So the world is full of people who know no limits or bounds to their ambition. And at all costs, driven by corrupt hearts and, and proud hearts, they seek the seats of power at the expense of everybody else. So we're seeing, seeing here the greatness of self-promotion the supposed greatness of self-promotion. It works in the world. But let's look at uh, the, the, the rest of this lesson. Okay, this is, they, know about the, they know about the corruption, they know how that works, but let's look at the other part of this, okay? It's in verse 43. Here's the path of self-denial. But it shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among you. And who are you? People in the kingdom. In God's kingdom. It's not this way. John 18, 36 says, 36 says, My kingdom is not of this world. The pagan approach works in the world. It doesn't work in the kingdom. The great don't manipulate or abuse their way to the top. It's just the opposite. Okay. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. This is a, a stark contrast between big shots and servant slaves. You want to be great in the kingdom? It's a noble desire. And we should all affirm it, right? Everyone should want to be great in the kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, it says, it says, you want to be pleasing to him, right? I want to be pleasing. It says, you should want to be pleasing to God. You already know the Lord is coming, and his reward is with him. That's Revelation 22. This is noble ambition, to take the crown and lay it at his feet and give him all the glory. We should be happy to let God judge us. Paul said, I don't care what men say, it's a small thing 
I wait for the day when the Lord will reveal the secrets of the heart, and then shall every man have praise from God. Pure, God-honoring motives. You want that? Be a servant. We need to be servants in God's kingdom. Don't be the person everybody serves. Be the person who serves everyone. Spend your life giving people what they need. We're obligated to it. We're obligated to it, to serve. And who's the model for this? In verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The greatest service and the greatest slavery were ever exhibited in the world were by Christ. He's not like other kings. He condescended. He came to do his father's will. In giving his life, he actually offered a level of obedience that would be deemed as slavery. And that's spoken of in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count all others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He made the greatest sacrifice, so he's the most exalted. He got the highest name because he made the greatest sacrifice. That's the principle. The greater the sacrifice, the more the, the glory. That's Christ. That's the model. That's our model. You want greatness in the kingdom? It's cor correlated to your selfless, serving slavery on behalf of others in sacrifice. And what was the sacrifice Christ rendered? In, in verse 45. Again, we, we see in verse 45, um, he gave his life as a ransom for many. And a ransom is the price paid for the release of a slave. They need to be set free. They need to be rescued. A slave needs to be rescued. The proud don't need to be rescued. They're doing just fine, thanks. To whom was the ransom paid? It was to God. God is the judge who has, has to be satisfied. God is the executioner who has to be propitiated. This is now, this is today, in today's terms, this has become gratefully and thankfully the dominant theme of the gospel. That Jesus is the ransom, Jesus is the substitute, Jesus dies a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners. The pride of sin had to be paid in full to God, to his divine justice. His justice had to be satisfied. The price that Christ paid satisfied God, settled his justice, and propitiated his anger. 
And in the Hebraic way of saying this, he, he did it for many, in exchange for many. Many appears there as it is juxtaposed against the Son of Man, or with the Son of Man. The ransomed, bought by the sacrificial, sacrificial death of Christ, are the many in contrast to the one Son of Man. One Son of Man pays the ransom for many. The path then to glory in God's kingdom is through humble sacrifice, seeing yourself as a servant, as a slave, with Christ as your model. And he was exalted and lifted up by his Father and given a name above every name. And the names that come under him in the glory to come will be the names of those who have served and sacrificed and deemed by God to be at the highest level. The path to greatness is not the world's way. It's God's way. Amen? How are we doing? Any, any guys, that, uh, any, any uh, thoughts or questions? That's pretty strong stuff. It's very strong. We need to be reminded of this so, so much. I mean, <laughs> just preparing for this lesson this morning. But God is, is faithful. He's, he's very kind to us. He's been very kind to us in Christ Jesus. And he always will be. Even when we get in tough situations, especially because we're doing it for him. We're, we're serving him. Okay, let's pray, y'all. Father, thank you for this wonderful look at the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his, his helpless disciples, Lord. Thank you for the loving kindness that we see expressed towards them. Lord, it's the same kindness you expressed to us in, in our sinfulness, Lord, our pridefulness. Oh, it's just, Lord, thank you for, for your loving kindness, your mercy. Father, and, 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 and your grace, Lord. Help us to receive these things, to receive your word, and strengthen us to do your will, Father. Strengthen us according to your word, according to Christ. The sacrifice that served us, each of us, Lord, that, that is the way, not only is the way into the kingdom, but you sustain us through these difficult times in, in, in the world, Father. It's a difficult time right now. Father, help us to, to be willing to look into the lives of others and, and, and be ready to serve so that your name is glorified. The name of Jesus, which is the name above every name, Father, is, is seen not by the eyes, Father, but by the hearts of men. The work that you do in the lives of men to regenerate them, Father, to, to save them. We know this well, Father. We thank you for it. Bless the service now, Father, the preparation of a message, your messenger, our pastor, that we would hear and be changed by the, 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 these, this word, Father, that you've given to us, and then take it into the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.